0: As we uh, jump into James, we're talking about real life, real faith, and as we examine this book, which is a very practical book we learned last week as we were introduced to James, the half-brother of our Lord, and he's writing to the church that is dispersed because of persecution that developed, and they were going through a hard time, and James is reminding them to think about these trials that they are facing. And he was wanting to give them a great perspective. And I think we need to understand that too, because we often think when we face trials that we think something's wrong and that that God's not supposed to bring these trials into our life. And we get angry because we expect all of these great blessings, but we don't understand that even a trial itself is meant for our good. And I have found, and I've, I've read a lot on this subject, just going through painful experiences in my own life, I found one author that really resonated, uh, I really resonated with what he wrote. He said, in the midst of the storms of life, we will either allow what we are experiencing to influence our view of God, or we will allow our view of God to influence what we are experiencing. Let me repeat that for you, because I find it to be very propa- profound. In the midst of the storms of life, We will either allow what we are experiencing to influence our view of God, or we will allow our view of God to have influenced what we are experiencing. Now, I have found when we are talking about the subject of trials, uh, we look at the scripture that we see uh, our trials are right here, and theoretically we see the scripture going just a little beyond that, meaning that the the truth is deeper than what our experiences are, at least um, theoretically. But then I find that there are certain aspects of suffering that we find in our lives that cause us to then go here, and then somehow Scripture seems insufficient to us. When someone has lost a a parent or a child or a spouse, or they're faced with such a painful circumstance, suddenly we, uh, we view that now I can't speak to them about the truth of Scripture because it seems insufficient at that point in time to really address what they are going through. But that's wrong. Matter of fact, as we really look within the Word of God and we concentrate on it, we find that the truth of God is not right here and our experience is right here. Or even when we think our experience is much worse, we find that when we really jump into Scripture and see the truths that God has laid out, we find that it's much, much deeper than any of the pain that we could go through. Because we find through the experiences of the lives of those who have lived through the Word of God that they have gone through more painful moments than any of us could even possibly begin to understand. Whether you're talking about persecution, you're talking about invasions, you're talking about murder, you're talking about God bringing the swift reality of who he is upon, to bear upon a life and a situation. Because for many of us, we have a very incorrect view of God. Our view of God is a tame one. In that, we see God as just this benevolent, this benevolent good being, but we don't see him in all of his power, and all of his fury, and all of his wrath, and his holiness. And we have made God, in essence, we tried to tame him, and we have tried to make God fit into our box, if you will. Some some years ago, I shared this story about a man named Mark Dever, who's a pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. And he was speaking at a conference, and he was talking about the wrath of God, the holiness of God. And as he was talking about God's holiness and his need, his his the essence of himself requires that he punish sin, every which sin, doesn't matter what man may do, it does not change God. And this one uh, man that was sitting in the front row, he interjected in the middle of Dever's talk, and he said, I prefer not to think of God that way. I prefer to think of God as this benevolent, loving, forgiving God that doesn't get too worked up over my sin in my life and and all the different situations, and he's letting things pass. And and Dever stopped, and he said, okay, enough about you. Let's now talk about God. Because the reality was is that this man was shaping God in what he wanted him to be, not who he is. And for many of us, we have to understand that, and, and suffering really has that ability to draw that out. Either it helps us place ourselves under the idea of who, or the, the knowledge of who God is and what He has revealed of himself in His word, or we force God down, and we elevate ourselves up. and then we, we call God unjust, because He's let us go through things that are painful. And so today, my hope is is to correct our misunderstandings and our false views of God. Matter of fact, the French mathematician philosopher and Christian Blaise Pascal said that the reason many of us do suffer so much, or we go through so many different trials and tribulations, is not because of who God is, it's because of our wrong thoughts of God. Meaning that we have these wrong thoughts and we can't understand our suffering. We can't understand the purpose of what we're going through. We can't understand and trust in God's master plan. And I would agree with him. We need to change our thoughts about who God is and understand our sufferings through the lens of faith. And then when we do that, we find that we have new strength, new attitude, new sense of purpose, new peace in our lives. So today, my hope is that we jump in and we explore this text together. As we see our sufferings and the trials and tribulations that we are all bound to face, and you might be going through one right now. I don't know what it is. It could be a physical impairment. It could be something going on in your career. It could be something going on in your family. Uh, it could be something just going on with inside of you, and you're feeling this massive trial, and you don't know where God is in the middle of it. And my hope today is just to show you and, and, and clarify that lens and also bring it into focus that we can see God for who he is and see our lives in light of that. That we might experience great joy as we continue to trust in him and see what he's doing, that he is there and he's working in ways that we cannot begin to understand. So I'd invite you to join me today as we explore this text and read James to see what God has spoken through him for not only the benefit of the 12 tribes that were dispersed or the Christians that were dispersed over the world at that time, but to to see and speak to us in our situations here and now. So let's pray together. Ask him to be with us and speak to us. Oh Lord, our God, so often our views of you are incorrect. How often we have elevated ourselves and our knowledge and how we believe you should be rather than how you really are. We have tried to tame you. We've tried to neuter you. We've tried to keep the idea of you, but removing your power and your authority in our lives. And Lord, we've kept you around, but it's, we find that the image that we have is really not you of all, but it's a false image. And Lord, today I pray that you take the hammer of your word and you smash the false images, the idols that we've created in our minds about you, but that we might see you and all of your power and all of your glory, but we also might see our lives and the painful situations that we face day in and day out through the lens of your word. And Lord, I believe that when we do so, we'll see that you you love us more than we could ever begin to imagine. And that the views that we had of you and we saw you as a, a benevolent, creator who loves us will see even greater your benevolence and your your love but will we'll also see that you don't spare us pain but you use it you redeem it to bring us closer to yourself to help us experiencing the joy of what it means to be called your child so lord help us to truly understand these truths that we're about to begin to study as we probe together as we explore the depths of your riches, of your wisdom, of your purposes and power moving in our lives, not only for the glory of your name that we might reflect back to you what you mean to us, but for the joy of knowing you, being able to commune with you as we think about what you have for us now and for eternity. Speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's jump right in. Verse 2 of James chapter 1. So look at your the word with me. This is a very well-known verse, one that uh, some of you have been in Christ for a long period of time might have heard but have probably not enjoyed reading, where the Scripture begins with, Count it all joy. Uh, right at the beginning, this is something that I'm sure would have shocked James' audience as they were going through persecution, as they were going through a difficult struggle. And I think it shocks us as well because how often do we think of the trials that we face as an opportunity for joy. Uh, And this isn't a uh, circumstantial happiness, but this is a deep abiding sense of elation that God is doing something beyond our ability to understand. Count it all joy, my brothers, meaning that this is written to believers, when you meet or face or encountered with trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect complete, lacking nothing. Again, James is writing to these scattered believers to remind them that there was a point in the middle of their suffering. And there's a point in the middle of yours, yours as well. It's an opportunity for them and us to grow. But for them to understand that, they need to understand this thing, first of all. Right off the bat, we have to remember God's in control. That our suffering has not come without God's knowledge, or allowance. Uh, We often think that somehow God was not at his post when suffering comes our way, that somehow it got through, as if God was a divine goalie that walked away for a few moments. And there's a trial that comes in, and we're like, God, why weren't you on duty? I'm not supposed to go through trials. But we realize that God right here, James is saying, Counted all joy, meaning that God is behind all of this ultimately, and he is working his will and his way for purposes we cannot begin to understand. And this stretches us because for many of us, we see certain trials as okay and acceptable for God to take us through. But there are some that are so beyond our ability as humans to fathom because of the depth of the pain that it takes us through that we just wash our hands and we say, God's not real. But the reality is, is that God is allowing things to occur for reasons that we don't understand. And oftentimes he allows that to get our attention to wake us up to the reality of our condition. Especially when we're in the middle of sin. That God allows pain to say, it's an alarm going, you need to pay attention to this. Pay attention, you need to make a change. Or you're going to continue on, you're going to hurt yourself more. I love you so much that I don't want you to continue in this. Because ultimately, it leads to your destruction. It's like with a child, and that child does something bad, and you and it could really be disastrous, not only to them or but to those around them, ultimately. And therefore, you have to discipline that child, and that's painful. Discipline is not fun at the moment, but the discipline is meant to teach that child that there are actions that are going to, can hurt you and hurt those around you. I remember as a boy that uh, I, I remember as a. a I was maybe 7, 8 years old, and I was playing with a soccer ball on our front porch, and I kicked it, and it went right in the street, and I saw a car coming, and I didn't want him to hit my soccer ball. So what did I do? I ran after the soccer ball, and I grabbed the ball just as the car stopped. It was a police officer. That didn't help much. And so I, I grabbed the ball, and my mother grabbed me. My mother grabbed me by the arm, and I realized, wah, 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 I just did something wrong. And she came up and she went, whap right on my butt. And I went, if my mom has hit me, something's seriously wrong. My mom didn't do that very often. But she she was trying to tell me in the illustrated point that you're gonna hurt, you're hurting yourself. You don't do this. The soccer ball's not that important. You are. And I'm like, I'm important, but why do you hit me? <laughs> because she was trying to show me an illustrate a point. I'm not saying you need to do it that way, what happens, but the point was is that sometimes God will do something to us to show us that we could hurt us and ourselves. And he sends these warnings to help us to remind, or remind us that he is there and he, he wants our best. So we have to remember that God is in control. James wanted his re- readers to and us to realize that he is in control and he is a point in our suffering. Now, no, notice this next phrase. When you meet trials of various kinds... As Christians, we're going to encounter trials. This word here here used for meat is actually used in Luke chapter 10 verse 31 when it's talking about the parable of the Good Samaritan when it says that this man was walking down and he fell into the hands of robbers. It's unpleasantness. It's the idea of you're meeting something you did not expect and you did not want to go through. This is an unwelcome, an intrusion in your life. And he's saying when you meet trials of various Kinds, And he says various trials. That means that there are different kinds of trials. There's not just a one-size-fits-all trials. That these trials will come in many different ways. For some, it might be the loss of a child. Or maybe a diagnosis of an illness of that child. For others, it, it could be an illness, a disease that you have been diagnosed with. For others, it could be a, a financial loss or a loss of a career, or loss of even a home or a job. For others, it might mean the loss of a relationship that God is somehow going to redeem that and use that. Now, it gets really tricky because we're like, is God behind all of that? God is working his will and allowing things to occur for our benefit. And sometimes he will, he will even use our sinful choices to teach us lessons to bring us to the knowledge of him. Now, we're in some deep waters. This is, this is some hard truth sometimes to understand. This is where we have to adjust our view of things, to place them under what we know of God. And, so, and we're not going to know everything about God, but we have to trust that he, he loves us and He wants our best. And we may not understand why He allows certain things to occur. But our, our vision of God has to be better, bigger than our vision of our circumstances. And when you, he says, when you meet various or trials of various kinds... And we have to remember that as that God is in control because this helps us find peace. Because when we're going through trials of various kinds, we again, we have this tendency to just let the fear exacerbate and our mind runs out of control. And we need to realize that God is in control because we know that when he is, that helps us get peace. And then when we have that peace, we can follow or go through that trial to know that he is there going through it with us. You know... President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, in his first inauguration, his most famous line was, We have nothing to fear but fear itself. But I find that not exactly true. I mean, fear is fearful. We can fear that, yes. But there are some realities that we might face that could be, it could actually happen the loss of a child, the loss of a spouse. These are things that cause real fear. Loss of family, loss of income, home, security, significance, reputation, etc. There's so many things that we fear. And the antidote is peace with God. God knew that we would have anxiety and that we would need his peace. That's why James is saying, count it all joy. You need peace in the middle of this. You need to change how you view things. And this peace, that is, it must be a peace greater than our circumstances. Because if we don't have our, a peace, then it's going to be very hard for us to go through these issues that we find ourselves going through. And we see Paul talking about this in the book of Philippians chapter 4. Do not be anxious about anything. He knew that we would have anxiety about the situations in life we would go through. He says, don't be anxious about it. But in everything by prayer... Supplication. In other words, you have to see that God has provided these tools for you to pray, to supplicate, to ask of him. And then thank God that he's working things in you you don't understand. Let your requests be made known to God. And then when you do so, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So we need peace right off the bat uh, to get us through these trials. And we also need to make sure that we adjust um, our perspective and have the right perspective of things. That's the second uh, letter B under number one. And we get that from verse three and four. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And th- let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. See, our faith needs to be tested to be authenticated, to be shown that it is real. The Greek word for testing uh, at its root means approved character. God is using our trials to do something in us to develop our faith character. And if we can know that, then that influences how we view things. And when our perspective is off, we fall under an avalanche of despair. But when our perspective is right, it helps us see things more clearly. As Richard E. Simmons III said in his book, The True Measure of a Man, he said, some of life's most sacred truths can be learned only as we talk through our individual storms in life. We all have them. Yet all we ever seem to want is relief and comfort. We demand instant solutions, but what we fail to recognize is that although God can solve all of our problems in a moment, instant solutions are not important to him. What is important to him is how we respond to our struggles. How do we respond to our struggles? He's doing something in us. And per- perspective changes everything; it changes what we see, our attitude, and the strength that we have that 's the next thing that James wants us to understand that God has given us a purpose or has a purpose for our suffering. We, we just saw that in the book of Joseph, or in the book of Genesis about the life of Joseph, did we not? That God was taking him through all of the junk that he took him through, and he had a purpose for it, and he was training him to lead the most powerful nation on earth that would enable. Thousands, if not millions of people to have food. But he didn't understand that necessarily at the time. But these trials that he was going through was to work something in him. But we have to understand there's a purpose for our suffering. Look at verse 4. And let steadfastness or perseverance have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now the, work, the Greek word for steadfastness, it refers to a deeper component of character that manifests itself in various situations. It means active steadfastness, staying power, constancy, and a determination under adversity. But it's colored with the idea of hope, which animates and enriches these other qualities. It has a, a purpose to help perfect us, to grow us. And this word perfect, actually uh, Greek word for perfect here is teleos, which shows us the purpose of it. it, has an end result. And the end result is, is God wants to mature us. and help us to see that God is doing something in us, not just in this world, but it's beneficial for the world to come. When we understand that God has a purpose for our suffering, then that is beneficial both now and in the future. And when we can't understand that there's a purpose for something, we cave under that avalanche of despair. Purpose can help us fight and stand up or bow down and give up. Chuck Colson, many of you might be familiar with him. He was a politician or was in the, uh, worked with Richard Nixon. We know that he participated in Watergate. He ended up being arrested, served some time in prison, and in doing so, uh, came to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. After he left prison, ended up uh, reaching out to prisoners, doing a lot of ministry. God really blessed this ministry as he had changed him in prison. But he tells this story in his book called Kingdoms in Conflict. He tells a story, and he he actually says it this way. He says, "Imagine the horror of Nazi concentration camp in Hungary. Imagine that there were Jews uh, that we are Jews held against our will and are forced to work in a factory that supplies the Nazis with the growing war machine. We're just barely surviving. One day, Allied aircraft blast the area and destroy the hated factory. The next morning, several hundred of us are." herded to one end of the charred remains. Expecting orders to begin rebuilding, we are puzzled when the Nazi officer commands us to shovel sand into carts and haul it to the other end of the plant. The next day, the process is repeated in in reverse. We are now ordered to move a huge pile of sand back to the other end of the compound. We think a mistake has been made. We say to ourselves, stupid swine, but a guard soon shouts and we pick up our pace. Day after day, we are forced to haul the same pile of sand from one end of the camp to the other. Finally, one old man begins to cry uncontrollably, and the guard hauls him away. Another screams until he is beaten into silence. Then a young man who has survived three years in the camp darts away from the group. The guards shout for him to stop as he makes a run for the electrified fence. We all cry out, but it's too late. There's a blinding flash and a terrible sizzling noise as smoke rises from his smoldering flesh. In the days that follow, dozens of the other prisoners go mad and run from their work, only to be shot by the guards or electrocuted by the fence. We overhear the commandant Riley, remark that there will soon be no more need to use the crematorium." Richard Simmons III gives this the point of Colson's story. He says, "If our struggles and pains seem purposeless, over time we'll become dysfunctional. Our minds will snap. If no meaning or purpose is behind the events as they unfold, life will always be bleak and hopeless, especially when pain and suffering enter our lives. Would it have made a difference if the Nazis had forced the prisoners to do the exact same work, but instead the purpose of the labors was to assist a bu- in building an orphanage for Hungarian children who had lost their parents, parents in the war? This shift in perspective underscores the concept Colson believes is so critically important Finding meaning and purpose behind what we are experiencing in life is everything. See, pain has a why, way of purifying and focusing us. Pulitzer Prize winner Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who had been placed in a uh, a camp prison for eight years because he had made disparaging remarks about Joseph Stalin. As, right after he was released from prison, he said this. It's pretty amazing. He says, I bless you prison. I bless you for being in my life. For there lying on rotting prison straw, I learned the object of life is not prosperity as I had grown up believing, but the maturing of the soul. He had gone on gone in an atheist, and prison caused him to become a Christian. And it's amazing then. He's saying, I bless you, prison. I bless you, suffering in my life. Because that is what got my attention. That's what woke me up. See, we are so consumed with our pleasures and our comforts that we've forgotten the concept of adventure. What it means to truly suffer for the glory of God any longer. We have to see that God is bringing these sufferings to bring us to a greater knowledge of who he is. Solzhenitsyn found purpose in his suffering and he understood suffering the way God wants us to understand it for our maturation. God doesn't want us to lack anything. He wants us to have more of himself. And what is the purpose then of your suffering that you're going through now? What is God trying to communicate to you right now? How, How is God trying to get your attention? Realize then that God is in control, but he's doing something you may not realize And instead of fighting against him, count it all joy, for it is an opportunity for you to grow. Trials have a way of showing us what we really believe, stripping it down so that it can be made stronger. Now, as we go through suffering, we need to remember that God wants us to realize that he is there for us in the middle of it. He wants us to request his help in the middle of our suffering. That's number two in your notes. Request his help. Look at verse five. If any of you lacks wisdom... In other words, as you're going through this, you lack wisdom to understand it. Let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. See, God wants to be there for us. He offers us a lifeline. He desires that we request his help. How do we request his help? This is where I find many Christians have a very hard time. They don't think they are worthy or they think they can handle it on their own without God, or they think what they're going through isn't big enough to merit God's attention. None of those are true. First of all, whatever trial you go through, it's all small in the eye of God. The biggest trial that you go through and the smallest trial you go through, they're all small in his eyes in many ways. So we have to understand that God is offering himself. He's saying, please call me. I, I, we want, to, I want to be a part of this. I want, to, I want you to invoke me. I want you to bring me into this. I want to be a part of your life. I want to help you through this. I want to give you wisdom. I want to show you who I am because I love you so much. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Request his help in the middle of it. And the first step that we have to do is we have to admit our need. Many of us don't want to think that we need God. Reality is, is we do need God. As I look around our our country right now in the last weekend... There are protests everywhere, people crying out, people putting up all kinds of placards, people going back and forth, shouting at one another. I want to stay off social media entirely because it's a mess. And people are vying for this or that, and people are fearful of what's going to happen, and others are not fearful, and people are are parading, and some people are protesting, and some people are anti protest and it's just stuff going all over the place. And as the middle of this, I go, Lord, I, I need you. I need your perspective on this. I need you to help me understand this. I need, I need to get your viewpoint. I need, to, I need your help right now. Not just this trial, but trials that I find myself in families. I, I'm amazed at how families are even divided over the election. I, I, I've, seen, I've heard of the stories of families, I've kind of even seen it on my own, where some families aren't even talking to one another because they voted for different candidates. I'm like, what's going on in our world? What's going on in our country? But we have to admit our need. We need help. We can't solve this on our own. We have this tendency as Americans, especially for those who are are born in the United States, growing up in it, we can solve whatever problem there is. We don't need anybody else. But the problems are getting bigger and bigger, and we have to see that only God can help us in the middle of this. So we have to admit our need. That's the first thing we have to do. We can't do this on our own. God knows that we need his help, but he also wants us to acknowledge it, to call on him, to invite him in. And to, for us to receive God's help, it involves us asking in faith. That's the next part. We have to ask in faith. Look at verse 6. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways." In, notice here, when it, the word ask, let him ask in faith, is actually an imperative. It's a command. God is saying, you ask of me with no doubting. He's commanding us to ask him, when we, to, to invite him in. Now, the problem that I find, and this is one of the most misinterpreted verses that I've ever encountered in my interactions with Christians. What does it mean to ask God in faith and not doubt? There's so much confusion on this. Because I've seen some where we say, Lord, we ask this in faith, if this be your will. And I had one person come up in the middle of a prayer meeting and say, you should not do that because that means you're doubting. And if you're doubting, then God's not going to answer. So I I remember going, okay, then what do you do? do?" And you hear these TV preachers go, we declare this in faith. We declare it in faith. You see, a, a false teacher is Benny Hinn, which he's a false teacher. Let me just put that out there right away. Okay? And I can give you a million reasons why. But he gets up there and he has people that are that are getting healed and he says, You have lung cancer. The person says, I have lung cancer, and he goes, he puts his hand on him and he says, You're being healed right now. As a matter of fact, you're healed. But if you doubt this healing, then it's gonna go away. Never once, not once, through the entirety of Scripture do you ever have Jesus do that? If a person was healed, they were healed on the spot. If I had a broken leg and suddenly was healed, I'm not gonna doubt that broken leg. I'm looking and going, whoa! Right? That's what you have going on. But have you ever noticed the people that have hin has come up? These are people that never have illnesses that are completely outright. The people that are there on hospital beds with IVs attached don't make it on the platform. They don't. He does something that he can make sure that people will try to believe it and give him money for it. I mean, the guy lives in like an $8 million parsonage for crying out loud on Malibu and won't discuss any of his finances or reveal it to anybody. It's not transparent. That's a false teacher. And I saw my father die because of this, by the way. I'm serious, this is, you want to get real, this is real. This is what happened to my dad. My dad was ta- told that if he had faith that he had to get rid of all of his insurance, that God would heal him. That's what he was told. So he got rid of his insurance. He said, "God's going to heal me, and I don't need to go to the doctor, because that shows that I doubt God, and that means that I'm not going to be healed." He was diagnosed in August with lung cancer, and it went to his brain in the next two months, and he was dead in February. Because he believed the false teacher. This is, when people say that, it's false teaching. There are different kinds of faith within the scriptures. There is saving faith. There is, and that's the gift that God gives us to play, for us to believe in him, to reveal himself to, he reveals himself to us and we believe in him. That's saving faith. We talk about sanctifying faith, that, that faith will help us in our life that we believe daily. There's actually a spiritual gift of faith when we believe that God's going to act in a certain situation, and that's going to happen, and that's for certain individuals, not for everyone. And it's not every circumstance where they just say, hey, we declare. That's not it at all. There's moments in time when God gives a, a gift of faith to someone, and they say, this is what God's going to do in this situation, and that's what's going to happen. That's a spiritual gift of faith. That's something that's totally different. There's also conditional faith where Jesus does say, let it be according to your faith. And then they are healed. Okay, But there's other times that there's unconditional faith where it's not even based on the faith of the person that's asking. The man that is brought in and brought in through the ceiling and he's brought down, it's the faith of the friends, not the faith of the individual that's there. And when Lazarus is dead, it wasn't Lazarus' faith that brought him back. There's, Peter's walking on water. People had a la- Peter had a lack of faith. When Jesus brought him back up, it's G- Jesus, it's not, it, Peter doesn't have any faith at all at that moment in time. So we see that there's different aspects of faith. And the faith that it's talking about here that we can see within this text, let him ask of faith. It's with no doubting. It's not just this conjuring up belief. It is a true hope in God that he will show us his will in this given situation. It means that he will be there for us and that he will actually show us. What does it mean to be doubting? And the idea here is, is that you don't believe that God can actually bring it through, but you're looking at the world and you're looking at the world and you're looking at God going, God can do so much. And I really don't think you can, but I'm going to go through the motions that you can, but I'm going to really look at the world and I'm going to cave into what the world says. So that's really not faith because you really don't, aren't looking at God alone. See, when you're really looking at God alone and asking in faith, you're saying that, God, I need your wisdom on this situation. I believe you're going to show that to me, and, but the problem is, is that I may not like it. See, that's why a person doubts is because they don't like it, and they think that God doesn't want my good at that moment in time, and then they go to something else. See, what we have to understand when he's talking about wisdom, what that is. I mean, it's actually a promise that he gives us, and we have to accept that promise. That's letter C in number 2. We have to accept that promise, accept the fact that he will help us. It is the opposite of doubting. And now what will will he help us do exactly? What is this wisdom that we ask for and how can we doubt in it? And why do we have to ask of it without doubting? See, this gift of wisdom is, as scholar, uh, theologian Douglas Moo wrote, it is understanding the divine plan and responding to it. That's it. It is the possession of the believer given by the Spirit that enables him to see history from the divine perspective. I love that. It is the possession of the believer uh, given by the Spirit of God that enables him to see history from the divine perspective. So when we ask God for wisdom, it's to see things clearly, and that is not always a welcome thing, because he may show us something that we don't like. The point is, however, that if we're truly people of faith, he will give us uh, his view, and we will respond to what he tells us. This kind of wisdom is only granted to those who trust God, who are not double-minded. And double-minded here means I'm looking at God and I'm looking at the world at the same time. And if the world wins out, I'm going to go with that. It's saying, no, 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 I have to cut that off. I'm not going to look at the world's wisdom. I'm going to look at God's wisdom, and I'm going to ask God to show my life and perspective that he has for it, and that will help me get through it that's what's being taught here. And that's a very hard truth to really, to embrace. It is, it is a wisdom that is granted to those who trust God, who are not double-minded. And in asserting this, he is arguing that those who compromise their faith, who look to both God and the world for their norms and security, are in reality lacking the essence of any faith at all. If they had faith, they could have wisdom, which the context implies, would make them perfect, probably by helping them to discern the situation of testing and reacting to it properly, so says Douglas Moon. So let me ask you then, who do you trust? Who are you looking to for guidance? It's not just that you are looking for God's wisdom, but that you're willing to submit to it as well. See, I've encountered several so-called Christians who say they want God's will in any given situation, and they ask, and God shows them what he wants, but the reality is they don't want it. They doubt because they don't believe that God wants their best. They only want it when it agrees with the idea they already have in their mind. The Question is, is what do you believe? Do you truly trust in him? Do you believe that he wants what is absolutely best for you? That he loves you with the divine everlasting love that was fully shown at the cross? If so, then you have to abandon your worldly ideals and go with what God has revealed of himself through his word. Let's continue back to our text you will notice that there's a shift in the text in verse 9. Matter of fact, it seems abrupt. It doesn't seem to make sense flowing. If you look at the text, he just, it starts in verse 7, um, and then it goes into the next paragraph in verse 9. But he says, For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man and stable in all he ways." So he's just talking about asking wisdom. But then suddenly, in verse 9, we read, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. What? What is going on there? That doesn't make a lot of sense. It's not one of my verses that I memorized. I don't get this. What the, when did we start talking about lowly brothers? And why is the rich guy, in, why is the rich guy in being humiliated? Why is he like a flower of the grass who will pass away? Where does that come from? What's James trying to, to say to us? What he's doing here is he's showing us where people have really placed their trust. In, that, in other words, he wants us to rethink our trust. Because see, he's saying that many people have trusted in their possessions and their positions rather than in God. They've trusted in what they can achieve and what they can do. And we have to rethink our trust. But this, the, the rich man, especially because he was trusting in his possessions, but the poor man, the lowly man, should boast in his exaltation. In other words, it's not hard for him to trust in the Lord. He has nowhere else to go. His faith is much stronger. It's the wealthier that often have a hard time. Let me, let me try to illustrate this, because this is, is kind of hard to understand. Uh, there were some several commercials years ago about trucks, and these trucks were being sold. I can't remember if they were Ram, Ford, Chevy, Toyota, whatever, but there would be this big giant load dropped in the, in the, the bed of the truck, and the truck would hold it and grow on it. It showed how strong these trucks were, that they would come from the factory, and they would have it, and they could be to handle all these different things. So imagine for a moment that you bought a truck, and you're driving along, and you're like, you know what? i I don't like the rims on this truck. They don't look good. So you put on some big 50s. Put on some 50 it's spinners, psh, rims, man. You want to you wanna pimp that out, man. You're really making it sweet. You, you know, little ground effects on it, and, and it looks good, you know, and it, it looks good. And maybe even low riding, you can just woo, cruising down like you're in L.A. Maybe even a little lift kit on it, psh, psh, make it bounce as you go. It looks great, right? You put all this extra stuff into it. And he's saying there um, Many of you rich people have put all of these extras on in your life, a lot of these add-ons that you think it makes it look really good, but now the truck can't accomplish the purpose for which it was built, and that was to hold the load. You were built to hold the load. God wanted, has built you and, and ordered your life that you put your trust in him. When you put your trust in him, you can handle it. When you give what God gives you and put your hope and faith in him, that's where you put your identity and your trust. You find that you can endure those trials when they come and that load comes down. But see, when we try to do all these add-ons, we're basing ourselves and putting our identity in our possessions that when that weight hits, it can't handle it anymore. See, the rich guy is putting all of his identity in his power, his position, his education, everything else but in God himself. And we can do this as Christians all the time. I've seen pastors do this. They, I, I've seen leaders do this. Put it in their their degrees, their education, or their their art of persuasion, or or the people that how did they got all this money and, and and people put their strength in all of these different things. The question is, is is it really in is you, is your strength really in God? And that's what James is saying. Is he's basically saying here these rich people have have based themselves in their life and their strength on so many other things. And in many ways, it's harder for us to trust when we have other places to go. But when you only have God, which this poor man did, he was actually better off. Now, he's not saying that you have to be poor. It's not wrong to be poor or wealthy. The question is, is what your focus is in the middle of it. Where do you find your identity? You can be wealthy and still have your focus in God and not in your other things. But but James is saying here, there's these people that are relying on their own abilities, their own talents, And it's going to be harder for them to trust. See, we can't find our trust in our possessions. Um, And the man that James is referring to here had his trust in himself. And that could be seen in his pursuits. Look at verse 11. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers like the grass. The flower falls and its beauty perishes. So will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. See, the rich man is continuing to go after money. He won't be able to endure under trial. He's not built for it. He found his security in what he could get and achieve, but it can't help you get through your troubles. So we have to go back to God. We will never find peace. We'll never have a pers- the right perspective, and we'll never be able to persevere until we go back to God. But when we do, we'll find that God, that God will reward us for making him our trust. Look at verse 12. Blessed is the man or woman who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. See, if God is our trust, then we can see that see, what we see here is that God requires us to persevere. See, the one who is blessed is the one who remains steadfast under trial. He has to prove himself to be true to God. That's the point of the trial, to purify your faith, and that can only be seen in our perseverance. Many of us are still fearful, though. We don't like suffering. And we have a hard time trusting God. We're great trusting God when everybody around us is trusting God and praising God. It's very difficult, though, when, when people come against us. But see, God invites us to come to him for trust and our satisfaction. We sang a song earlier today that was actually based off of Revelation twenty two seventeen, where Jesus invites us to drink from the fountain of living water. And it's about receiving God's offer of salvation to freely partake of it. However, our salvation is multifaceted and it's often revealed through our trials. We must continue to trust in him. C.S. Lewis demonstrates this in one of his stories in the Chronicles of Narnia. A young girl named Jill, in Lewis's book, The Silver Chair, she uh, presents a wonderful representation of humanity. She's clearly consumed with herself and is convinced that she alone knows what is best for her life, just like many of us. She wants to have nothing to do with Aslan, the great and magnificent lion who represents Jesus. Yet Jill is desperately searching for water. She grows unbearably thirsty. She can hear a stream somewhere in the forest. Driven by her thirst, she begins to look for this source of water cautiously because she is fearful of running into the lion. She finds the stream, but she is paralyzed by what she sees there. Aslan, huge and golden, is there sitting And he is still as a statue, but terribly alive. And he's sitting beside the water. She waits for a long time, wrestling with her thoughts and hoping that he'll just go away. Then Aslan says to her, If you are thirsty, you may drink. Jill is startled and she refuses to come closer. Are you not thirsty? said the lion. She said, I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low low growl. And Just as Jill gazed at his motionless, this motionless hulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her near frantic. Will you, will you promise not to, not to do anything to me if I come? I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now, without noticing it, she'd come a step nearer. Do you eat girls? she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. He didn't say this as if he were boasting, nor as if he were sorry, nor as if he were angry. He just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh, dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I, might, I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. See, Lewis knew that there is no one else that is worthy of our trust and can provide us for our salvation. We try to escape our trials, but the reality is we can't. We're going to go through trials. It's inevitable. But Lewis also knew that we had a hard time trusting in God because he's not tame. His view is not match what we want Him to be. He's much greater. He doesn't do the thing, things the way we like it. It is true that in the midst of the storms of life, we will either allow what we are experiencing to influ- influence our view of God, or we will allow our view of God to influence what we are experiencing. So this is the question. Are we willing to trust in Him, knowing that He will put us through trials because He loves us? Or, Will we refuse to trust because we are afraid of what he might do? Trust in him and drink and know that he loves us. And any trial that comes our way, no matter how painful it might be, he will use to show himself in our lives that his name might receive glory and what we might increase in joy. You hear me use that all the time because I believe it's true that God will do everything for his glory, but he also does it for our joy. For Jesus... For the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. It was a trial. It was God's will to bruise him, to wound him so we might have salvation. God had a purpose for his sufferings and God has a purpose for yours. No matter what you go through, he's there for you. He wants to use you and he wants to redeem that suffering for the glory of his name. Don't run from it. Don't ask him to take it away. Ask him for the strength to bear up underneath it that you might receive what he has for you and you might grow in maturity to become the person he wants you to be. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, trials are tough. This is a hard truth. It's hard for us to understand. We know the circumstances that we find in our lives. We know how often we have looked to you and we have wanted you to conform to our idea of who you are. But the reality is, Lord, we need to look at, the other way around. We need to look at our trials through the lens of you. And once we do, we do find peace. We do find perspective. And we find, when we find a sense of purpose that you are using it for reasons we don't understand. Lord, just like you did in Joseph's life, that you were using the injustices that he went through as a training ground to help lead a nation. Would help us to see our suffering through the lens of faith. Help us to welcome these trials and tribulations as opportunities to grow to have your name become greater in our lives and help us, Lord, to become less. But as we do become less and you become more, may the joy that we have in you increase, that people might see you and us and be drawn accordingly. Lord, we know that we are the fragrance of Christ, that we are lights on a hill, that we are salt in the middle of this world. And help us to be so joyously. Not for the glory of our name, but for the glory of your name. May your name be made greater through us as we go through these trials and tribulations. Your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.